Hey, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Feels a little earlier than normal, but hey, you guys did it. Great job, y'all. Hey, uh, as you're coming in, let's go ahead and have a seat and let's turn our attention to the video for a second. Since 2010, Fellowship has been sending a team to the Rosebud Lakota Sioux Reservation in South Dakota, focusing on the objective of breaking barriers and building bridges, promoting healing between native and non-native people, and attempting to provide authentic friendships that are respectful of our cultural differences. Through partnering with local ministries and outreaches, we demonstrate our faith in a way that is culturally appropriate while serving, supporting, and strengthening the tribe with programs that assist their current needs. One of those partnerships is with the Sechangu Lakota Youth Center. One of the outreaches of the Youth Center is music education. Students who learn to play a musical instrument are more likely to complete high school and less likely to commit suicide, leading us to launch an arts camp focused on teaching students how to play guitar, violin, cello, and bass, along with participation in drama and visual arts projects. We were simply there to be the light of Christ for them while teaching their kids how to play instruments and how to express themselves through the love of music. Some of the most incredible life-changing moments happen when those students start to open up. I specifically run the room that teaches violin. We teach them the basic concepts of the instrument and by the time the week's over, we put on a little concert. They get to play for their families and it's emotional, it's joyous, and it's just an incredible experience to witness. The team will be returning to Rosebud Reservation June 17th through 24th to host the Arts Camp and to assist in any other service projects we are made aware of. To prepare for the trip, the team is seeking instrument donations of any kind, especially guitars and other stringed instruments, from violins to ukuleles. We're also very interested in taking band instruments for the high school, along with keyboards, new and used. So no matter the condition, we'll take your old instruments stuck under the bed, in the attic, or in the closet behind all your clothes. We want them. Instruments can be left at the Celebrate Recovery office on the Rogers campus, or in the sound booths in the back of the worship centers in Bentonville, Rogers, or Fayetteville. And if you need more information, contact David Atterbury. I wasn't expecting such a huge cultural difference because we weren't leaving the borders of the United States. Every time I've gone, there, there's been a little more that they've given me and a, and a little more that they've shared with me. And so it's something I wanna keep going back for because I can't get enough of their stories. It's such a cool opportunity. That was the voice you were hearing was David Atterbury. He uh, he's our worship leader for Celebrate Recovery here at the Fayetteville campus, and uh, they've been doing this this trip for a while. And so, if you have a musical instrument that that you are cool with parting with, um, just bring it, um, and you can drop it off in the the sound booth in the back of this room. Uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, church, let's stand together and let's worship together this morning.
church you can have a seat wow thank you good morning everyone welcome we're so glad you're here today how many of you woke up this morning realizing that you lost an hour of sleep yeah half the room right you can see some empty chairs as well we're so glad you're here today my name is ted leonard i work in the training center here at the church and we wanted to uh, inform you or let you know about two opportunities that we have here this spring coming up, two classes. One is actually called In Defense of the Resurrection. It's a class that I'll personally be teaching. It's an apologetic class that looks at the historical events surrounding the resurrection itself. And what we'll find is, as we look strictly at the historical record around it, it's an additional layer that we have uh, in addition to the biblical accounts to have great confidence in the resurrection. So we're excited to give you that. For example, one of the sessions will talk about the empty tomb and the differences in the gospel accounts, what that means, and actually adds uh, validity and reliability to the truth of the resurrection. So that's a four-week class offered at 10.30 in the uh, classroom next door starting the week after Easter. And you can uh, log on to the website or look at the QR code and get more information about that. Our second offering is a two-day conference called Story of Scripture. It's going to be offered at the Rogers campus. It's going to be a broad view of the Scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So if you've been wanting to try to get a big, broad picture of the Scripture for years, this will be a great opportunity. Dr. Mark Yarbrough, president of Dallas Theological Seminary, will be leading us in that class. I hope you'll join us in one of those two offerings. Again, uh, go to the website or look in the church newsletter for more information. But space is limited in each of those classes, so if you're interested, sign up quickly. Okay, thank you for your attention. Hey, let's go to the Lord in prayer and continue our worship. Father, we're grateful for you as we step in to worship. We acknowledge you as our Savior and that you and you alone give us hope. Will you meet us here this morning? Will you make your presence known to each one of us as we worship as we sing songs to you, as we listen to your teaching. For that, we're so grateful. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, it's mid-March. Easter is right around the corner. And so this is a fun announcement. Um, These are our services that we're planning on. So for the first time ever at our Fayetteville campus, we're going to do a Saturday night Easter service at 5 p.m., okay? So consider that uh, as an option uh, as, you're, as you're making your plans for Easter this year. So, so 5 p.m., Saturday night, and then we're gonna have three services uh, in here, in this room, Sunday morning at 8, at 9.30, and at 11 o'clock that morning. So for you planners out there, we're getting these times to you early. So, so make your plans again, 5 p.m., Saturday, and then Sunday morning on Easter Sunday, 8, 9.30, 11 o'clock. Church, let's stand together. Let's continue to worship this morning. Oh, 
Steve Gorder, uh, and this is my daughter, Sadie Gorder. She's seven years old, about to turn eight. Uh, we're really excited and thrilled to be here. Sadie accepted Christ as her Savior a couple years ago, and uh, she's really been asking us over the last several months to be baptized, and uh, I uh, am 100% certain she knows Jesus, and um, she's an amazing person. She uh, is so kind and sweet and um, really loves to serve others, um, puts others before herself. Um, she comes and serves with us in Fayette Kids, and um, you can just see her gentle spirit when your young ones come into pre-K and they're struggling. They see her, and uh, she really helps get them in the classroom and make them feel comfortable. Um, and I credit that to uh, Jesus in her heart and her spirit. So is it your testimony today, Sadie, that um, you know you're a sinner and you needed Jesus uh, to be welcomed back into God's presence? Yes. All right, well, it's my pleasure and privilege and honor to baptize you in the name of Christ. Buried with Christ in baptism. To walk in the newness of life. mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. And just like the song that we just sang, just in the testimony that we just saw through baptism, we have hope. We have hope in Christ Jesus. So church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, you can have a seat. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we this morning? Good. If you got a cup of coffee, grab it. Raise it up so I can see it. Raise it up high. A couple coffee people in the room. All right, take a nice, deep, long sip of that coffee right now. You're going to need it. We lost an hour. We got three chapters 
to cover this morning. It's going to get wild uh, in here uh, this morning just a little bit. So uh, I'm excited to be here. My name is Garland. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and uh, I'm glad to join you this morning. We're continuing in our Esther and Daniel series. If you look back on uh, the last several hundred years in Western culture, we'll just focus in on Western culture, there have been some really significant paradigm shifts in the last several hundred years, like perspective changers where everything is different after this perspective shift. Like uh, there have been several huge moments, like before Copernicus, everybody thought that the earth was the center of the solar system, the center of our universe. And when you did the math and looked at the planets, how they went around, it didn't add up. And so they had all these complicated ways of describing how the planets moved until Copernicus. And he created a massive paradigm shift in our understanding when he said, actually, the sun is the center and everything goes around it in our solar system. And the pieces fell into place. It made sense. It was a radical shift. Einstein's general theory of relativity was a similar shift. We've had social paradigm shifts, like the printing press made it possible to gain access to information in a way like never before. For the masses, both of just, we might just call it regular old literature and in sacred texts as well. The, the, the fact that we can have a printed Bible is a result of the invention of the printing press, obviously, give it several centuries. Now, uh, we've had seen several of these perspective-changing, kind of world-altering shifts in the last just few decades. It's happening relatively rapidly. I was talking recently with someone. This will date myself, and the people my age and older will get it. I was talking to somebody who's around 30 the other day, and I mentioned dial-up internet. Dial-up internet, remember it? All right, let me, if you don't remember it, if you're, if you're too young for dial-up, here's how you had to access internet when I was like in junior high, middle school. Um, you had to take the cord out of your, your phone. Now, phones then had cords, and they went on the wall. And you took the cord from outside of the phone, and you plugged it into the back of your computer. And the computer was like this big, and it could barely like do Microsoft Word. That's all it could do, basically. And that was really exciting to unplug your phone and plug it into the computer. But if you think about, with the advent of the Internet, how so many things have changed. Like the, uh, the HVAC and the lights in this room come on because of the internet. And it's crazy how much has been changed because of the internet. We've seen so many of these paradigm shifting things in such a rapid succession in the last few decades. Like I'll, I'll, I'll confess my stupidity and ignorance here. Um, when every single one of these social media platforms came out and including the cell phone, okay? Um, iPhone came out, I think 06, 08, something like that. It's changed everything about how we interact with each other, how we uh, gather information, how we watch things, how we consume media, how we get news. And on every one of these, people presented it to me. This is a new thing. It's going to be really exciting. And on every one of them, my first response was, that's a terrible idea. No one will ever use that waste of time and money. Here's the lesson. If you are ever in my presence and you hear me say, um, especially about a tech, piece of technology, that will never catch on. We have no need for that. It's a waste of money. Invest heavily, immediately in that company. It might become one of the biggest companies in the world. So invest in it heavily, immediately, when you hear me say that. Um, this morning, I, I'm going to suggest for us, we're gonna have a paradigm-shifting kind of morning, maybe even for many of us in the room. I don't wanna oversell it, but we're gonna have to have a, change of perspective as we look out at not only our world, but the people that are trying to follow Jesus in this room, how we follow him in the here and now. Now, I'm calling this the perspective of the way. This is the way. We've been talking about the way, and some of you started doing it, especially the first week as we presented the way. Some of you were texting me in mockery, and many of you would see me and say it in mockery, but it's kind of catching on now, I've noticed. So if you go back to our Daniel chapter one sermon from several weeks ago, we talked about the way of faithful presence. And then last week, came, uh, Clark came in here and he said, what are the weapons of the way? Integrity and prayer and submission. This morning, I will suggest to us the perspective of the way. And here's our three, our three ideas as we need to have a bit of a perspective shift this morning. The first is this. 
there's more than meets the eye. When we look out into our world, there's often more than meets the eye. The second is this, that things are not out of control. It's been a regular theme in the book of Daniel. And lastly, that the best is yet to come. There's more than meets the eye. Things are not out of control, and the best is yet to come. Take another sip of coffee and turn in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 10. Now, as you're turning there, um, this week, um, we're not going to cover everything. We got three chapters to cover. Um, I was slicing and dicing this sermon to try to get it into time, because otherwise, we would just be here all morning. We spent a lot of time this week on sermon notes. It's our podcast that kind of is a companion to what we do up here. It gives you the the stuff that we have to cut, or the interesting conversations that we have as a teaching team that might not make it into the sermon. This week's was, ex- was longer than normal, and we went into depth on some of the stuff that we did not, not have time to cover uh, this morning. So wherever you get your podcast, just uh, check out sermon notes this week, and if there's stuff that you're thinking, there's a stone unturned this morning, go there and check it out. You might, uh, you might have it answered there. All right, Daniel chapter 10. We're going to pick it up here in verse 1. Remember, the book of Daniel presents a series of episodes, stories, and then visions that are gathered together to form the book of Daniel as we have it now. And this begins a new vision for Daniel right here. And here's how we're introduced to it, chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 1. We're told this, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Daniel receives a revelation. It's going to be about a great war, he says. And the message came to him in a vision, just for context of where we're at. Daniel finds himself as a refugee growing up in foreign territory under hostile oppressors in the Persian Empire. And this is the Persian Empire at its height. The Persians are the ones who eventually will stare down the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. It's the same empire, okay? So Daniel's set around that same time for you history people in the room. And Daniel is going to receive a messenger. He's going to have a message And the message freaks him out. In fact, on hearing the message, it says he mourns for three weeks. He fasts at the reception of this word from the messenger. Now, if you look at verses four through about verse nine, you'll notice that the heavenly messenger is presented to Daniel. He's described how he looks and what his eyes are like and his feet, and it sounds very similar to things that happen in other apocalyptic literature. And then Daniel falls on his face before the heavenly messenger out of fear. What, what could this message be? A heavenly messenger is sent to Daniel with a message, and then things get a little strange. Look at verse 10. Daniel's fallen on his face before the angel, and the angel touches him. And it set me trembling on my hands and knees. And Daniel said, or the angel says, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed. Now, this might give us insight as to who this heavenly messenger, this angel is. You can write down in your Bible next to verse, 10, uh, next to verse 11 there, Gabriel. This heavenly messenger, messenger is most likely Gabriel. Here's how we know that. He shows up in chapter 8 of Daniel. He shows up in chapter, chapter 9 of Daniel. And these words, you who are highly esteemed, it just so happens that The named angel Gabriel shows up in our New Testament in Luke chapter one. You can write Luke chapter one down and greets the mother of Jesus, Mary, and says, Mary, you who are highly esteemed. So most scholars think that the angel that shows up to Daniel here is the named angel Gabriel. And he says, consider carefully the words I'm gonna speak to you. Get ready, here comes the message, verse 12. He says, Daniel, don't be afraid. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them, but, okay, things are about to get a little wild. Verse 13, it says, but the prince of the Persian kingdom, now all this prince language is going to show up here. You can write above the word prince in your Bible just, for, just for, to jog your memory next time you come back to this. Just write the angel of the Persian kingdom. We're gonna see this developed. Look at what he says. But the angel, the angel who's in charge of the Persian kingdom has responsibility over the Persian kingdom, he resisted me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the chief angels, Michael shows up all over apocalyptic literature. We see him in our Bible many times. Then Michael, one of the chief angels or princes came to help me because I was detained there by the king of Persia. Look down at verse 20. He says, the angel says, don't you know why I've come to you? 
He says, soon I will return to fight against the, the prince or the angel of Persia. And when I go, the prince or the angel of Greece will come. But first, I have a message for you. Now look at the parentheses. This is crazy. This is awesome. He says, no one supports me against them except Michael. Who's he? He's your prince, the, the angel who's responsible for Israel. He's your angel. What is going on with all this angel stuff? Gabriel was detained by the angel of Persia, who's now going to go meet the angel of Greece, and Michael's fighting against them, and what's going on? I've been detained. What do we do with all this? I'm going to give you two cross-references. Write these down. Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 to 9. I'm going to give you some homework today. You're going to have to go do some research on your own. Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 to 9, and Psalm 82. Psalm 82. Here's what those two will tell us. Deuteronomy 32 is reflecting on the establishment of the nations in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. We call it the Tower of Babel scene. And when reflecting on the establishment of the nations, he says that Yahweh set the boundaries of the nations according to the sons of God or the angels. They've been given responsibility over the nations and peoples. But Psalm 82 will tell us that those angels, instead of bringing goodness and justice and beauty to the nations... They became corrupted and ignorant and darkened, and they brought darkness over the nations. It's a strange picture that the Bible is giving us. It's going to begin to, to shade our perspective in this world. Now, none of this should surprise us. On the third page of our Bible, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when we get the account of, quote-unquote, the fall, I think we often think about that as that's when sin came into the world and things got really bad. And yes, that's true. But none of this spiritual darkness language should surprise us because on page three of our Bible, we have the great tragedy in this world. Here's what it is. We see the unholy union of the spiritual and the human in rebellion against their creator God. It reads this way. Now the serpent... Serpent is not just what's going on, a talking snake. Uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world, serpents are often represented or depictions of the cherubim who guard a deity. And so an ancient reader sees this and goes, I know what that is. That's one of the angels who guards the throne of the deity. And this angel is crafty, we're told. And he begins a whisper into the heart of, of, of Eve. And then she takes and eats. It's this unholy union of spiritual and human in rebellion against their creator. <clears throat> this, this is what is responsible for all of the evil and brokenness and injustice and pain that we see in our world. This is where I think imagination can help us, like where we're movies or books can aid us a little bit. Just think about, if you haven't seen them, it's not that big a deal. Um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or The Lord of the Rings, as Lewis and Tolkien uh, give us an imaginative perspective of this. Thomas is kind of a brat, right? But then the Wicked Witch is able to kind of seduce him into rebelling and getting more and more angry. Or in The Lord of the Rings, you've got the Ring of Power, and it's always working. It's this pervasive force in Middle-earth and it's kind of clouded everything. And every time humans get it, it begins to darken something inside of them. It's where imagination, I think, can help us. Michael Heiser is a Hebrew scholar, Old Testament scholar, and he says this. And I think he's right on the money. I would commend this book to you, but it might, it might startle you if you read it. It's called The Unseen Realm. Here's what Heiser says. He says, seeing the Bible through the eyes of an ancient reader requires shedding the filters of our traditions and presumptions. They process life in supernatural terms. Today's Christian processes it by a mixture of kind of sterile creedal statements. Yeah, 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 we believe these things when I go to church. And then largely, most people that I know, we kind of live like modern rationalists, almost like naturalists, but with a twist. We put like, you know, some miracles in on the end on Easter and virgin birth and things like that. But most of us live as if, you know, Modern rationalism, naturalism is the way forward. Now, here's why this matters. Here's why we have to have the right perspective when we look out into our world and even look into our own lives. 
Here's why perspective is so important. If you would indulge me a sports analogy just for a moment. Um, if you go to watch a basketball game, let's say it's Arkansas versus Kentucky or something like that, um, you may suppose as you watch it that it's five on five. Five dudes here versus five dudes here, and they're playing the game of basketball with a, with a basketball and two goals, okay? But there's a dark, sinister force that's also at work in that basketball game. If you don't account for it, things might get difficult as you partake in watching that game. There's a dark power, and it has a huge impact on the game. It's called the referees. If you are a referee in the room, this is what we think of you, okay? We think of you as a dark, evil force in the world that is not capable of good. Um, just kidding, uh, kind of. Um, if you don't account for them as you watch the game unfold, if you don't account for them, then what will happen is uh, you won't understand what's going on. And it might make you really frustrated or angry or bitter. It, it, could, it could make you really sad. And you might, you might also find yourself losing the game, like your team losing the game. The biblical imagination of the world around us is that there's more than meets the eye. And it's not just a couple of verses here and there. It's all over your Bible. Paul in the New Testament says this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be ready when you go out into your city to stand against the devil's schemes. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you have this perspective? Let me talk to two groups of people in the room, okay? Jesus followers, if that's you in the room, do you have this perspective? When you see geopolitical events going on around you, when you see uh, the way that sin and idolatry and injustice has clouded nations and corrupted even your heart, when you go battle against sin in your life, do you have this perspective or are you living like a naturalist with a twist? Do you see the dark power at work in the nations out there and in our own? In our own, that dark power that has, that has led to greed and materialism and comfort and pleasure at all costs and individualism and autonomy, the worship of sex and money and power, its clutches are in deep. Do you see it? Do you pray as if you see it? For the skeptic in the room, maybe you're not a Jesus follower, and you, somebody brought you this morning, you're like, what in the world is going on in here? Can I talk to you just for a moment? Skeptics in the room. The Bible presents a robust picture of the problem that's in our world. The Bible gives a robust enough picture for why there's brokenness and injustice and pain in this world. The Bible's clear-eyed about it. It's not afraid. This unholy union of spiritual darkness and human rebellion against their creator. Whatever worldview you brought into this room, does it have a robust enough answer, a robust enough answer to what is wrong with the world? Because if it doesn't, you'll, your solutions will be too small. The Bible's gonna give a solution. We'll see it in a minute. But if you don't have a robust enough picture for the problem of injustice and brokenness in the world, you'll never see a, a right solution. Okay, the first point, I promise you, will be the longest. There's more than meets the eye. Do you see it? It's the first piece of our perspective. The second is this. Things are not out of control. All right, where are my history majors in the room? History majors? Look at the excitement on the history majors, all three of you. Um, that's, that's cool. Uh, history buffs in the room? Okay, that's good to know. Um, three of you like history. All right, for the three of you, the next five minutes, you're going to be like, yes, finally we're getting some of that in church. And the rest of you lean in, okay? Otherwise, you can't make sense of chapter 11. Um, let's see what the angel says. Now, the first chapter 10 is an interaction back and forth. We're kind of being introduced to the characters. If you'll notice, 
Chapter 11 begins one long extended quotation by the angel. It goes all the way up to chapter 12, verse 4. You notice that. It's one long vision, one long message. And what we're going to notice is it concerns geopolitical events that took place in the ancient world, largely. And uh, it has a reason why this is the message. It's supposed to give perspective. Hey, hey, Daniel, Yahweh followers, when it looks like things are out of control around you, trust Yahweh. Look, I'm telling you beforehand. You get the perspective? You get the point? Now, uh, here's how it begins. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an overview just so you can sense it because I, I knew it'd be three of you. The rest of you just kind of go with me here. Verse two, now then, he says, I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia, then a fourth who will be far richer than the other ones. The first part of the message concerns the future of the Persian empire. But then we're told that a mighty king will arise. He'll arise out of Greece. And every single scholar reading Daniel chapter 11, I don't know any that doesn't, uh, we can look back historically and see precisely who this is referring to. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 3, this mighty king who arises is Alexander the Great in the 330s BC. Uh, He is one of the most Famous or infamous, however you want to see it, rulers, kings, and and conquerors in all of human history. From Greece, he marched all the way to what is now India, conquering everything in his path. Now, just like we've seen the downfall of the human kings in Daniel, on his way back from India, in the capital of Persia, which he just conquered, he dies. The question is, was he assassinated or died of natural causes? And nobody knows. But on his way back from, from uh, India, he dies. And then upon his death, his kingdom is split up into four different, uh, we, might, we call them states now. And you can see that being predicted in verse four. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of heaven. Now, you can, we can see and look at how those states were divided. And you can see the map here. Um, now, just like in the modern world, you've got now four states with four different kings and rulers. How do you think that's gonna go? It goes about how you'd guess, terribly. They're constantly fighting, they're constantly at war, and they're all constantly trying to take all of this for themselves. And two of them are gonna be really significant for Daniel, the yellow and the red. See the yellow and the red. Colorblind people, the one on the right and the bottom, okay? The kings of the yellow... They're going to be called in Daniel 11, the kings of the north, okay? And then we're going to see that story play out. And the kings of the red thing down here, they're going to be called the kings of the south. And in Daniel chapter 11, you're going to see about a 160-year period of the yellow and the red fighting. Who's caught in the middle of those two? What's right in the middle of that? Israel. The highway to march your army through goes right through Israel, You can see why the story of these two nations is going to be really important for Daniel and Jews during this period. Just to give you a a sense of what it sounds like, I'll just give you one one section. It details about 150 years. Here's one section. Oh, then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north. When you read it, you're like, what is happening? Okay, yellow and red are fighting, all right? It's going to build, though, to one particular king of the north. In verse 21, uh, he's called the contemptible person. Underline that. The story builds to the quote-unquote contemptible person. We can zero in on who this person was. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. The city of Antioch is named after his family, Antiochus. And uh, he had coins minted, and they say this, King Antiochus, uh, the shining God, or the manifestation of God. Antiochus was especially hated by the Jews. We can see why right here in Daniel chapter 11. Look at verse 31. He does some atrocious things to the Jews. His armed forces will rise up, the angel says, and desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination that causes desolation. Here's what Antiochus did. Him and his soldiers, they marched into Jerusalem and they set up a Zeus statue in the temple of Yahweh. 
and they sacrificed pigs on the altar, unclean animals to the Jews. And they forbid Jews from eating kosher, and they forbid Jews from circumcision. They forbid Jews from practicing the Sabbath. And the temple lay fallow under Antiochus's desecration for three and a half years. It's a dark day in Israel's history. Some of those Jews, this is about the 160s BC, they were so fed up with Antiochus and so angry at what he had done to the temple, they began to, with military action, rebel and then march on to the capital and overtake it and rededicate it to their God. And as they went up to the temple, as they got rid of the Greek soldiers and they rededicated the temple, they were wondering, well, we have oil. It's been three and a half years where the temple is laid like this in desecration. Will there be enough oil? And they thought we only have just a tiny amount of oil, maybe for one day. And instead, they had oil that lasted for eight days. That's the story, by the way, of Hanukkah, okay? So the story that's being celebrated at Hanukkah is this story that's kind of woven into this part of Daniel chapter 11. It's actually really cool. Um, now, here's the point, though, of this section. Why does Daniel 11 exist? What's it trying to do to communicate to the reader? And here it is, verse 33. The angel says, those who are wise, the ones who have perspective to see, eyes to see, will instruct many, and though they fall by the sword or are burned or captured or plundered, when they fall and stumble, look at verse 35, they can know that they'll be refined and purified and made spotless until the time of the end. Here's the perspective. Even though it looks chaotic and looks like the crazy pagan king is in control, trust Yahweh because things are not spiraling out of control. Do you have this perspective? Let me talk to two camps in the room. For Jesus followers, let me talk to you for a moment. When you see things in our world, when you see things in our culture, when you see things in our city, you see things even in your own life, your first response, do you well up with fear and well up with bitterness or well up with rage or well up with anxiety? How could this be happening? What's going on? Or do you have a resolve? Because you know that Yahweh's in control. You recognize that that fear and bitterness and resentment is not the mark of a Yahweh follower, trusting that he's in control. You have to have perspective to see. For the skeptic in the room, let me talk to you just for a moment, the skeptic. Where is this thing headed? How do you know good will win in the end? Justice will be served. I mean, what gives you your confidence? in the now. Let me put it to you this way. How do you know we're not just floating on a random planet, third from our star, that one day it'll burn up the planet and none of it will matter? Let me ask you to drill deep into your worldview. If the biblical imagination is saying Yahweh's in control, trust him. It's more than meets the eye. Things are not out of control. And lastly, the best is yet to come. The message builds to chapter 12, and look at what it says, 12.1. At that time, Michael, the great angel, the prince who protects your people, will arise, and though there be distress, at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book of life, will be delivered. Rescue is coming. Deliverance is coming. And look at the form it takes, verse 2. This is a strange note in your Old Testament. The Old Testament does not give almost any picture of resurrection. It's very ambiguous in the Old Testament. And then the angel comes along and says, Daniel, hear it. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Hope is coming. Rescue is coming. Vindication is coming. Victory is coming. Let me talk to two camps in the room. For the Jesus follower, when's the last time you just sat in, marinated in the reality of the empty tomb? 
Do you really believe that? The angel's giving Daniel a message about a resurrection at the end of time. And the empty tomb of Jesus says it's a certainty. Do you have hope? No matter what you're going through, the chaos you may be going through, the difficulty and the pain you may be going to, you have hope. Because the empty tomb? Skeptics, let me talk to you just for a moment. What gives you hope? Is it your unwavering confidence in humanity? Your belief in technology? Politics? How's it working for you? Drill into your worldview. Now, the vision ends this way. This, this long vision ends this way. It says, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Very common in apocalyptic literature. Sealing of a scroll. Seal it up. Roll it up. Seal it up. Keep it hidden. This is how this long message of the angel ends. And that rolled up scroll is going to create some expectations for us. Expectations of a victory over the powers. Expectations of a king who will come. An expectation of hope that is secure. Can I show you how New Testament authors reflect on this? In Revelation 5, remember, apocalyptic literature is always sealing up scrolls. And in Revelation 5, Dan, uh, the author John has a vision of Yahweh on his throne, and he says, I saw the one on the throne, and he had in his right hand a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Seven, the number for completion, it's perfectly sealed. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And John looks around, and he says, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And he weeps and weeps because no one could open the scroll or even look inside it. And then one of those standing by, one of the elders, places his hand on John and says, don't weep. He's crying, look up and see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David. He's triumphed. He can open the scroll. He's weeping. John, look up and see a lion. And he looks and sees, not a lion, but what does he see? I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. The lion in the form of a lamb. And he took the scroll from him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, worship breaks out. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons for every tribe and language and people and nation, including Arkansans, Texans. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. They will reign on the earth. The expectations of the book of Daniel, they find their yes and amen in Jesus. The cross is the place where the decisive battle between Christ and sin took place, where the powers of Satan brought all their strength to the attack and where they were defeated. That dark power has been dealt with. Paul will say they were stripped of their power on the cross. The true king has come gives his life as a ransom for many. And the empty tomb of Jesus means our hope is steadfast and secure. Do you have this perspective? I'm gonna invite us now. We're gonna stand and reflect on those expectations, find their yes in Jesus. Would you stand with us? Let's sing.
Available in there as well. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next week.